All right, Daniel chapter 5 will be the reading of our text this morning, and it's the whole chapter because we love the Bible at Westside, amen? Amen. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a paperback Bible in the pew back in front of you, and if you are a guest with us or if you just don't own one, that's our gift to you, man. We want to give you God's word. When you get to Daniel chapter 5, say, he is the king of everything. All right, follow along, have your eyes on Scripture. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 31, and upon the conclusion of the reading of the text, I will say this is the word of the Lord, and because we are so thankful for this book and that God has preserved it and penned it for us with his own hand and his own breath, you guys can respond with thanks be to God. Daniel chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, he brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God of Jerusalem, and the king of his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, uh, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and 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 that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a claim, a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler of the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God, gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, 
He was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of beasts, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, say amen to that, and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck. And a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius, the Mede, was received, received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. This is the word of the Lord. Well, Westside, we're glad to have you today. And we are continuing just chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through the book of Daniel. And as you can tell through the little bumper trailer, what we're learning is is that sometimes being a Christian in this world is like living in a jungle. We are learning from the book of Daniel how to live for God and love God in a culture that quite frankly hates God. And so for you to back up a little bit, you can go on our website and listen to some of those other uh, sermons to get sort of the context of the book if this is your first time. But today in chapter 5, we're sort of picking up where last week left left off, excuse me, and where we are is there's the same theme sort of in chapter 4 and chapter 5, and it's the fun theme, it's really positive and motivational, it's about pride and arrogance (laughs) that we've been learning, and what we're seeing is sort of a warning that Daniel is writing to exiled Israel and warning them about, about the dangers of pride. And maybe sort of as an introduction, this, this will be helpful. Does anybody know the, what this fish actually is. The technical name is a tetradonite, or better known as a puffer fish. Puffer fish. I hate that picture with the, like, the pointy things. It's, I don't know. It just wears me out, you know? So what a puffer fish is, is for its defense mechanisms to live in the wild. If prey swims by or it's about to be eaten, it puffs itself up. But it doesn't do it with just air. It's actually a deadly poison that puffs the fish up. And the poison is so deadly that actually it has the capacity to kill 30 people in this room from one fish. But here's what's crazy about it. It's also considered a delicacy in Japan, and it looks like this, which doesn't look too delicacy to me, you know? Maybe some hot sauce. I don't know. (laughs) We'll see. But actually, in order to prepare this fish, it's prepared by what's known as a fugu. Not fubu. That's close. Fugu chef. And the fugu chef has the equivalent of an American doctorate to prepare this fish 
because it's so dangerous to prepare. And I think that is a profound and physical illustration of pride itself. To be puffed up, the poison of pride. And we learned about last week about all the warnings that are in Scripture about this particular vice, really. And St. Augustine, one of the early church fathers, really said it best. He said, pride is the mother of all sins, for she is pregnant with all the rest. And actually, when we can trace vices and shortcomings in our life, pride is really always at the center. And Jesus sums up, really, the past two chapters in one verse when he says these words. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So why do you need to listen to this sermon? Why is it important? Put the tension right up front. Because the reality is, is that we as fallen human beings struggle with this vice. And if you're sitting there telling me that you don't struggle with this vice, then congratulations, you struggle with this vice. You see how it works like that? It's crazy, right? And so here, here's what we learned, that, that in reality, at the core, the problem in your marriage is not your spouse's shortcomings or quirks or things like that. It's, it's, it's your pride. The problem with the addiction, per se, is not just the alcohol or the pills or this or that. That's the fruit of something. There's a root of something that's there that we're using something to cover that up with. And quite frankly, that is pride. And there's a stark contrast between Daniel chapter 4 and Daniel chapter 5. Scholars believe that about 23 years have passed. Daniel is somewhere around 60 years old. And the new king of Babylon is Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. And the butter has slid off this guy's biscuit because he lasts one chapter, one chapter. And what we see is still the same thing happens. This story of pride, this story of arrogance, if you will. But we also see God demonstrating his power in a very, very real way. So here's how I would summarize Daniel chapter 5. God destroys human arrogance by demonstrating his awesomeness. And yes, awesomeness is a word. I looked it up in the dictionary this week. But if there's one thing that we see the psalmist, that we see the prophets, that what Daniel is demonstrating us is God's awesomeness. And did you know that actually the root word, the etymology of the word awesome, finds its trait in the Hebrew language? That literally the Bible coins the word awesome, and it's a word reserved only for God. Only for God. So I'm sorry, but your cat's not awesome, okay? Right? Your dog, maybe. I'm just teasing, okay? But it's a word totally reserved for God. But we see a compare and contrast today. So we've got to work through the passage and work through some of the rough stuff, the warnings in the passage, and we'll study and look at human arrogance And then we'll get to some really, really good news about God's awesomeness. So human arrogance, what do we see? Well, the first thing is this. Arrogance desires significance. Arrogance desires significance. That's the whole point. It's the whole point of pride. It's the whole point of arrogance. A prideful person doesn't want to go unknown, right? Terrell Owens loves me some meat. You know what I'm saying? It's not a quiet aspect. And we see this in the first four verses about Belteshar's great 
feast. We can see something here about this. This feast is so significant that the Bible takes four verses to describe it, right? It's sort of Game of Thrones-esque, if you will, about this awkward feast. And what you got to know is about ancient rulers is that's how they showed their rule and their power. Is, Is that they would throw feasts, they would show how powerful they were. But as I was studying this this week, one commentator brought to light a guy by the name of Ernest Becker. This is Ernest Becker. Ernest is actually an atheist, um, adamantly does not believe in God. But he still assesses the human condition. And so there's a reason why I pull from from many different resources oftentimes. Number one, maybe you're someone either peeking over the fence at Christianity or you're not a believer. Um, I want you to know that I value your opinion in here. And I also do this to aggravate you because you have to agree with me because I'm using someone from your camp. You know what I'm saying? So I know it's going to kill you to agree with a preacher today. But for some of you as believers is, is you need to know what the other side of the argument is. And Ernest Becker wrote a book called The Denial of Death in 1973. It actually won a Pulitzer Prize. And he says that human beings are obsessed with significance. It's the reason why you wore the clothes that you wear, the house that you bought, the job that you work at, the music that you listen to. All of those things are to show your individuality, significance, to be known. And he says there's three primary ways that human beings search for significance. The first way is this, the noble way. The noble way. And we actually see this in the feast. He throws this for his lords, almost like a favor, if you will. And so the noble way is someone who is um, heroic, right? Somebody who wants to save the day. Mighty mouse, right? Here he comes to save the day, you know? That's that person. So maybe you're cause-oriented. My generation is obsessed with this. We'll march about anything, bro. I mean, anything at all. Bad Facebook status, we're making picket signs and we're marching. We're mad about it. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's significant. It's a noble way. But many of us enter in maybe into relationships this way. So when you search for a spouse or you search for someone to date or to court, you like to find broken people. Why? Because you can change them. Right? This time... It's going to be different, right? How's that going? How's that going for you, right? Noble, noble. And, and many of us take the high road all of the time, right? I would dare never do something like that. And in reality, yeah, you're trying to do something right, but you're actually striving for significance. So the noble way. The second way is very 2018 is what he calls the sexual way. And we actually see this here at the dinner, Did you see that he brought the king and his lords and his wives? Plural. Hey, guys, real quick, just say bad idea real loud. Just say that real loud. Bad idea, right? I can't figure out one. You know what I'm saying? Much less like four. I don't even know how that's a good idea. Wives and his concubines. If you want to know what that means, you can ask Pastor Tyler. He'll be out in the lobby later to explain what that means. There's a desire for this. And then we see that it gets real weird in, in, in this aspect. And if there's anything that's 2018, man, come on. 
desiring for significance. And so it's sexual identity, it's sexual promiscuity, it's marriage doesn't need to be this way, it needs to be this way. And what I love is, is our society is obsessed with the idea of sex. And listen, I hope that you would be okay with me teaching on this and your kids being in here, because number one, they already know more than you think they do, so you're dumb in light of that, okay? Secondly, that's our thing, man. That's our thing. God created that, all right? So it's not like, oh, society, this is a bad thing. So society is obsessed with this idea, but never satisfied. Never satisfied. So it's constantly trying all of these different ways to do this and to do that. And they are obsessed, and we are obsessed with this idea to find significance this way, yet we're constantly reinventing it. We're constantly doing things. And so maybe like crazy idea. I know this is nuts and this is crazy. But what if we went with the creator's way? I don't know. That would just be nuts. Like when my iPhone has a problem, I call Apple. Why? Because they made it. So maybe if something's going wrong in this area of our life, we should revert to the creator in light of that. And what's funny is Ernest says that we're constantly unsatisfied, that, that we're constantly unsatisfied with this and we're constantly reinventing it and unsatisfied. The sexual way for significance, burning through relationships, no commitment, all benefits. And the last way is this, the spiritual way. And we see this here in the feast. Verse 4, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze. It's like the elements table right here, right? Wood and stone, right? And we look at the Bible and we go, oh, ancient literature. They worship like stars and the morning dew and everything like that. Okay. Well, what's interesting in 2018 is the Barna study group just took a poll And the growing number of religious and spiritual gap is what's called the nuns, not the ones with the hats and the dresses. This is called the people who don't affiliate or associate with any type of religious tradition. They are just spiritual. And Ernest Decker, listen, an atheist says the most difficult argument for atheists to solve is the search for significance found in spiritual ways. That that humanity and cultures who are far removed from all technology and everything still have ancient ways in which they worship. And so many of us want the benefit of spirituality, but yet we don't want a God who tells us how we should do that. But here's what he says what's wrong with this search for significance, and this is profound. We use all of these things. They're just a vehicle to get to one destination. And the destination is you. Because you see, self-absorption always leads to self-destruction. Always. So sure, you might say you're noble or the sexual revolution, right? Or spiritual. Actually, you're selfish. (laughs) You've got to get to the core. And listen, please be honest. You've got to be honest with that. And what we see with arrogance is, at the end of the day, what motivates pride and motivates arrogance is it's a contract deal. That's why marriages explode that way. Because if you do this, then I'll do this. And if you don't do this, then I'm going to punish you by not doing this. That's contractual. That's arrogance and pride. So arrogance desires significance. But secondly, arrogance gets ignorance. 
That's what it gets. We've seen a common theme. Look in verse 8. So this dream happens, right? Or there's this writing on the wall. And here's what I love again about the, about the Bible. Our society is constantly trying to remove the Bible from society, but phrases keep making their way in society, like the writings on the wall. That comes from the Bible. Also, man, he has feet of clay. That came from Daniel chapter 3 about the dream. So what's interesting about this is we see that the writing comes on the wall and God is doing something in this king's life, but where does he go to figure it out? Look in verse 9. I'm sorry, verse 8. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make it known to the king or its interpretation. Again, verse 15. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make it known, its interpretation. But they could not show the interpretation in this matter. Listen, there's a problem with the human condition. Okay? Believer, non-believer alike, you have to agree with that statement. Something's wrong. And society is constantly going around technology, politics, and I'm not against any of those things. I'm against those things when we think those things will save us and change the human condition. That can't happen. And I've quoted this before, but Dale Ralph Davis says this. Daniel is saying that life is a dead-end street without a God who discloses what the future holds. He is telling exiled Israel that there is no need to be in awe of the pagan culture despite the trappings of its splendor for it is nothing but empty and dark. Listen, here's why the gospel is offensive. Here's why the gospel is offensive. Because the gospel says when you look inside yourself, there is nothing inside yourself to save you. Oprah lied. There is no spark inside of you, okay? There is brokenness and there is darkness. Darkness. Humanity cannot save itself. And what the gospel says is, is that you need something outside of you. Listen, you don't give a drowning man advice. Kick harder. Use your arms. And many of us grew up in churches where that's the only advice we got. Behave better. Work harder. Serve more. Listen, someone who's drowning needs someone to save them. But pride and arrogance will never ask for help. Oh, no way. And when you do, you're going to go to places that you know will only give you a certain answer. So arrogance desires significance. It only gets ignorance. But then the last thing, arrogance denies the evidence. Because the writing's on the wall. The scariest verse in this passage is verse 22. Daniel is speaking and he says, And you, his son, Belteshazzar, which is Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this, but you have lifted up or puffed up yourself against the Lord of heaven. That's terrifying. You knew this. You knew the story of your grandfather. And listen, that's true for some of us in the room. Look at your genealogy. How many people are divorced? How many people are alcoholics? How much this? How much that? You knew all of this, yet you did nothing. 
Listen, did you know that apart from God's word, God's people, and God's spirit, there's no plan B? There's no plan B. This is it. This is the plan that God has set in place. And so when we hear the word of God proclaimed, when we surround ourselves with the people of God, when we we are in sync with the spirit of God and God reveals his will to us in our life, this is it. You knew all of this, yet you you did nothing. That's why when you sit down with someone who is arrogant and prideful and you say, this thing in your life is killing you. And it's going to kill your family. They will slam their hands on the table and they will point a finger back at you and they will say, who do you think you are to speak into my life that way? It denies the evidence, but why? You see, arrogance denies the truth because it's deceived by lies. We learned last week, pride thinks it's the exception. Always, bar none. So it's deceived by itself. But here's what's so scary is that believers do this. We believe lies. We think that we're the exception. Brian Chapel was the president of Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis, and he says this, Daniel, or I'm sorry, the king continued in his sin because he trusted the gods he made to protect him. Sometimes contemporary people continue in sin because of a God that they have invented to protect them. They believe that because they say that Jesus died for their sins and God forgives whatever they confess, that they can do whatever they please. Such people reason, quote, God doesn't want us to be really bad, but the ordinary business lies, the ungodly entertainment, the academic compromises, the residual anger towards a spouse, the neglect of church obligations, these things, they don't really count. After all, God knows we're just human. Such believers smear the truth about Christ's blood on their sin, believing this will insulate them from its consequences. And they only fool themselves. The God they imagined will protect them is not the God of Daniel. You see, God loves you enough to drop kick you when you're walking into oncoming traffic. Just as a father beckons his child... And says, don't go that way. Please don't go that way. This part of the passage serves as a warning for us. But now we get to God's awesomeness. And good news. Anybody for good news say amen? Amen. And you know what a good jeweler does? A good jeweler, when they are showing you a precious stone, puts it on black velvet to show you the contrast and the light And the beauty of that stone. What we see in this passage is the backdrop and the blackness of human arrogance and pride. And the brokenness of humanity. But what we see is the beauty and the diamond of the gospel. So what is awesome about God in this passage? Well first off it's his word. (laughs) What I can't get over in the past couple of weeks, is that God is still chasing after the prideful and the arrogant. 
It's profound, isn't it? I mean, look at what this king even does. He takes the holy vessels there in verse 2. Remember what those were in Daniel chapter 1? So in the holy of holies, they had vessels that they used in their worship service. It was the most holy. It would be like Assyria or North Korea came, bombed the White House, and took our Declaration of Independence. It's the most valuable thing, and they use it to blaspheme God. But God is still chasing this king, and he literally puts the writing on the wall. And do you see what Daniel does in verse 17? So this king says, whoever interprets this writing, I'm going to dress him like Mr. T, right? I'm going to give him a gold chain, right? I pity the fool, right? But what does Daniel do? Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Why? Because of the values in the word of God. The messenger is nothing. The messenger is nothing, but the message is everything. And the crow makes its appearance at the perfect timing. (laughs) Right? It's a sign of God's judgment. Ah, you know. But what's profound about this is the God who spoke the universe into existence. Listen, don't miss this. Is speaking to an arrogant, prideful sinner. That word... That word, that's why we read the text before the message. Did you know that? That's been done in ancient Christianity for years. Because what Calvin said is predicatio es beardum day, es beardum day. The reading of the word of God is the word of God. When that passage is read, God is speaking to us. And we pronounce thanks be to God. What's awesome? It's his word. But secondly, it's his faithfulness. Because look in verse 30. That very night, Belteshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. You say, Jason, what's awesome about that? Well, God spoke a word, and the word came true. Because listen to me, everything that God has said, everything that God has said will come true. And all of the warnings are true for the wages of sin is death but the free gift of God in Christ Jesus is eternal life so it's not just true in the warnings but listen it's also true in the promises so when you read passages like Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 for I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion unto the day of our Lord Jesus Christ Those promises are true that God is faithful to his word. But the last thing that is awesome is this, is God's grace. It's his grace. And you say, Jason, where's that in the passage? Well, the writing that was on the wall was mene, mene, tekel, parson. And the translation is, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. But here's what struck me when I was studying the passage. Tekel. You have been weighed in the balances and have been found lacking. Terror struck me when I read that. Because I thought, oh no. What if I have to get on the scales? What if I have to get on the scales? I'll be found lacking. I'll be found wanting. And then I was so thankful to understand that now we read this post-cross. 
now we read this in light of Calvary. Because now what we understand what the gospel is, is yes, that there were scales, and yes, that our God is just, and yes, that our number was called, and yes, that we were prideful and arrogant to stand before that. And if we were to stand on those scales, we would be found lacking. We would be found wanting. But the gospel is in that moment is that Jesus steps in front of us, and Jesus in my place gets on those scales, and he is not found lacking. For the scale tips in his favor. And then we read in Colossians. And you. You. Who were dead in your trespasses. Not kind of bad. Not oh I didn't keep all the commandments. Not kind of rebellious. Dead. In your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together. Not you. It wasn't you reaching, meeting him halfway. It wasn't you working really hard. God made a life together with him. Having forgiven us all of our trespasses. Not some, not a little bit, not only the ones that you could could accept because only you can't forgive yourself because you struggle with your past. All of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside. How? How did he set it aside? By nailing it to the cross. All past, present, and future. So now we are not found lacking. And Brian Chapel concludes with this. God warns of his judgment so that we will seek the son who already assumed it. You see, the blood of Jesus beacons and it beckons. It beacons as a warning to all who will look, testifying that God judges sin. Turn back, the blood warns. Turn back from the sin that leads to your hurt and this destruction. But at the same time, at the same time, the blood beckons. It beckons sinners to come and to be covered and to be cleansed by the crimson flow which God lovingly provides for all who repent. Come, cries the blood. Come away from your guilt and enter the forgiving, comforting, strengthening presence of the Savior. You see, God destroys human arrogance by by demonstrating His awesomeness. And His awesomeness is Calvary. For as we say, no one stands tall at Calvary, but we all bow the knee. So listen, there is a warning and there is assurance. And we come to the table today and oh, the table beckons you. The blood beckons you. The body beckons you today. And it says, leave your sin here. Leave it. Let it go. And embrace the blood that was given to you. So now on those scales, we are not found lacking, but we are found whole. Heavenly Father, we come before you today and God, have your way with us. Do what you need to do. I cannot apply this sermon to every person in this room, but Holy Spirit, you can. Today it is a beacon for some. Some are headed down a road and you as a loving Father says, please don't, please don't. There is a better way, release it. But for all of us in the room, it beckons us. 
and it beckons us to come and to receive grace and to receive it freely. Nothing in my hands I bring, but simply to the cross I cling. We pray this in the name, in the name that is not found lacking, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you stand where you're at and come and participate in the table today?